morning, church. Thank you, Hope. Great job. Take your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter number 3. John chapter number 3 and verse number 22. I believe that it is the true heart desire of every sincere follower of Christ to live a life that is useful to the kingdom of God. The question is, how does one go about doing that? What are the characteristics of a life that is more than just living out our days here on earth? Well, I believe we have an excellent example in the life of John the Baptist. While the first half of chapter 3, we have examined the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, and we have seen the Passover being observed, we now return to a consideration of John the Baptist. You'll recall that we first heard from John the Baptist in verse number 6 of the first chapter, and You'll remember that John is a rather fascinating character. He, he is the first prophet to appear in Israel in over 400 years of silence. And he is, in fact, the last of the Old Testament prophets. John provides the bridge, the bridge to the New Testament, as he presents the forerunner who is, who is the Messiah of all the Old Testament giants, none is greater than John. And we have that on the authority of the Lord Jesus himself who said, Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus said, of all the men who ever lived, John the Baptist was the greatest. Now John begins his ministry just prior to his 30th birthday, his ministry is less than a year. He was born of godly parents. He was of the priestly line. His father was a priest. His mother's father was a priest. He is a child of miraculous birth. He was born uh, to aged parents who had, were unable to have children. He was the only man of whom the Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And we know that he lived his entire life as a Nazarite, never drinking any fruit of the vine, nor cutting his hair or his beard. John the Baptist had a great deal of popularity among the common people as a result of his preaching. Luke tells us that multitudes went out into the wilderness to hear him preach. And Matthew tells us that the people came from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about the Jordan to hear John preach. Even King Herod liked to hear John preach. That is until he started meddling and he told the king that he was living in sin because he was living with his brother's wife. Now we pick up in verse 22 as Jesus leaves Jerusalem. It says, After these days, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea 
and there remained with them and baptized. Now John was baptizing an eon near Salim because he was because there was much water there, and they came and they were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. After these things means those things that have occurred in Jerusalem over Passover week. During this week, Jesus has cleansed the temple. He has had an intimate conversation with Nicodemus, a high-ranking Jewish leader. After leaving Jerusalem, following his evening conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus goes out to the province of Judea into an area where John the Baptist is also baptizing. John the Baptist will soon be arrested by King Herod, but at this point he was still conducting his ministry around the Jordan River. When Jesus and his disciples arrive in the same area, many people left John and went to Jesus. This turn of events greatly disturbed some of John's loyal disciples. I want you to see with me, first of all, the distress of John's disciples. Verse 25 and 26. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now, verse 25 begins with the word then, or as it is in some translations, therefore. It's indicating there's a transition here, a transition to something new. The text indicates the work of the forerunner, John the Baptist, does overlap the ministry of the Messiah. And because of that, one day, some of the followers of John the Baptist got into a discussion got into a dispute, really, with some individuals about the subject of purification. We're talking about baptism. There is no indication in the text as to who these individuals were or exactly what the issue was, other than it was over the issue of purification and that there was a difference of opinion. Perhaps they argued that all this talk about baptism was confusing, Here was John making disciples and calling on people to be baptized, while Jesus, who John had baptized, was also busy making disciples of his own. John later makes it clear in chapter 4, verse 2, that it is the disciples of Jesus that are doing the baptizing, not Jesus himself. Can you imagine the sort of elitism that would have developed in the ancient church between those who had been baptized by Jesus and those who had been baptized by somebody else. We know, according to Paul, that there was a problem in the church in Corinth much later over a similar issue by those who were baptized by Paul, those who had been baptized by Apollos, and those who had been baptized by Peter. When John's disciples bring this dispute to the attention of John, what they say betrays the fact that they're upset about the popularity of Jesus. They carefully avoid even mentioning the name of Jesus, but simply saying about him, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you testified. 
The real problem here is not that the disciples of Jesus were baptizing. The real problem is they were apparently baptizing more than John was. And although some of John's disciples left at his urging, as he did in chapter 1 and verses 36 and 37, to go and follow Jesus, not all of them did. There were some loyalists who stuck tenaciously with John the Baptist. Was it possible that some of John's disciples were more attached to his powerful personality than they really were to the message that he brought? They loved to hear John preach. He loved to hear him preach about the need for repentance. It was exciting to hear John denounce the religious leaders as snakes and vipers. I wonder if it is not somewhat like people in our own day who like to hear a tear the hide off the sinner message every Sunday morning. They have themselves repented. They know they're saved, but they haven't moved since. Hearing salvation sermons is great because they're already saved. But don't preach to me about any of my acceptable sins. Don't tell me about anger, bitterness, judgmentalism. Don't want to hear that. Joel Olstein admits about his congregation that he makes sure his congregation is comfortable by never mentioning sin or the need for repentance. And some churches make their people feel comfortable by preaching on things they know that their congregation will feel good about and make themselves feel good about. After all, they carry the right translation of the Bible. They wear their hair the right way. They wear the right clothes. But they are mean and they are spiteful and they are full of anger. One has to wonder. Now I want you to compare the distress of John's disciples with the attitude of John. Verse number 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. We have already seen a demonstration of John's humility at the end of chapter 1, which I referred to a few moments ago, in which John encouraged his disciples to cease following him and start following Jesus. He said there in verse 35, again the next day John stood with two of his disciples and and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples who heard him speak, they followed Jesus. According to verse 37 then, when two of the disciples of John the Baptist heard what John said, and these are probably John and Andrew, his brother, When he said, look, the Lamb of God, they immediately began to follow Jesus. Now, as we begin to examine the attitude of John, I think we see within it some principles of useful service. If one is to live a life of useful service to the kingdom of God, 
I believe that you would be hard-pressed to find a better example than the one given by John the Baptist. And so I want you to note three characteristics with me found in the life of John the Baptist that we can emulate in our own lives. First of all, we need to acknowledge that all of our gifts are from God. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. First, if we truly want to live a useful life for the kingdom, we have to reach a point in life in which we are content with the place and provisions that God has given us. We must realize that God has placed us where we are. And God has given us what we have. And those things are to be used in his service. So if we have gifts, they were given by God. If we have enjoyed any success in life, it is because of God's grace. The Apostle Paul put it this way in writing the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, What do you have that you have not received. Now, if you do indeed receive it, why do you glory as if you had not received it? So if we have anything, if we have succeeded in any endeavor, it was because of God's grace. John's ministry is the ministry that God gave him. His God-given task was not to be the Messiah, but to introduce the Messiah. John saw his purpose as preparing the way for the Messiah in fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah who said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John was the forerunner. Jesus was the fulfillment. Secondly, we must have an attitude, a joyful service. Verses 28 and 29. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. This second characteristic is in reality a byproduct of the first. John says, because he has accepted his place and the provisions that God has given as coming from God, rather than being frustrated and jealous of the success of Jesus, he feels great joy at the fulfillment of God's purposes. Now, John uses an analogy to try to help his disciples understand that he and Jesus are not in competition. He says, Christ is the bridegroom, and I am the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom would be comparable in our day to the best man at a wedding, other than the friend of the bridegroom had far greater responsibilities. I read a story about F.B. Myers one of the great preachers of his day. He was a gifted preacher, but he struggled with envy because he had the misfortune to serve in London at the same time that Charles Spurgeon, who is arguably the 
greatest preacher of his generation, also pastored in London at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So in spite of F.B. Meyer's ability and his hard work, he could stand outside his church and watch the carriages flow by his church on the way to hear Spurgeon. Later in life, he had another preacher come to London by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. He also eclipsed Meyer's success. In fact, they often spoke together at conferences, and when they spoke together, vast crowds would listen to Morgan, and then they'd get up and leave when Meyer got up to preach. Convinced and convicted of his bitter spirit, Meyer committed himself to pray for Morgan, reasoning that the Holy Spirit would not allow him to envy a man for whom he prayed. And he was right. God enabled him to rejoice in Morgan's preaching. And in response to those prayers, Morgan's church overflowed and they had to go to Meyer's church. The last thing I think we look at here is that we need to examine and exhibit humility. He must increase, but I must decrease. There are three musts found in John chapter 3. First, John 3, 3, we, he says we must be born again. And then in verse 7, he said that Christ must be lifted up. And now in verse 30, he says we must decrease in order that he may increase. And this third must is crucial. John is saying this is the way that it must be. This is God's purpose and plan. Now, almost everybody recognizing that humility is important and desirable. It is, in fact, the opposite of pride. But where does humility come from and how does one attain it? Arthur Pink, in his commentary, expressed it this way. Humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less I attain it. But if I truly am occupied with the one who is meek and lowly of heart, if I am constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then I shall be changed into the same image from glory unto glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. Which brings us to the third and last characteristic, the testimony of John and his testimony about the supremacy of Christ. At the core of John's testimony, now we're talking about John the Apostle here, are those things that set apart Jesus from every other human messenger. The writer of Hebrews put it pretty well when he said in Hebrews chapter 1-1, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken through his Son. 
It is God himself that has provided the successes and the increases in the ministry of Jesus. So look for a few minutes with me at the ways in which Jesus is superior to any other messenger. First of all, because of divine origin. Verses 31 and 32. He who comes from above is above all. Who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard and that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. John the Apostle now points to the superiority of Jesus over every other messenger, including John the Baptist. John was a faithful witness to everything that God had entrusted him with, but he was limited in that he was human. He only had a limited human understanding of the things of God. But Jesus has dwelt eternally with God the Father. And because Jesus came from heaven and has returned to heaven, we can believe everything that he told us about God and heavenly things. Jesus is not only different from everyone else, Jesus is greater than everyone else. It says he is above all. He is also greater because of his heavenly message. Verses 33 and 34. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the spirit by measure. So Jesus is not only superior because of his heavenly origin, he is superior because of his heavenly message. William Barclay said, so if we want information about God, we will get it only from the Son of God. And if we want information about heaven and heaven's life, we need to get it from him who comes from heaven. And the final thing is his heavenly authority, verses 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall never see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The love of God for his son is so encompassing that nothing is beyond the son's reach. Anything and everything that belongs to God, pertains to God, God the Father has placed in the hands of his son. Glorious truth is those that have placed their faith in, in his son have everlasting life. John explained that because Jesus is the man from heaven, there is a heavy price for rejecting the Son. He says, He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you reject the Son, then you receive the wrath. When John speaks of the wrath of God, he doesn't mean a sudden impulse. He doesn't mean a, a burst of temper, but rather he means the settled displeasure of God against sin. Verses 
Now, although the concept of the wrath of God is disagreeable to many readers, modern readers of the Bible, and there are various explanations offered to soften the expression and to explain it away, the truth is, in reality, it cannot be done because to do so would to do great violence to the word of God. He meant what he said. To reject his son and receive the wrath of God. So if we want to be of service, we need to recognize that everything we have, where we are, the provisions we've received, they are the gifts of God. We need to have a a joyful attitude in our service, and we need to exhibit humility in our lives. Let's pray. Father, grateful for the human example of John the Baptist, something that we can attempt to emulate in our lives. We do envy others sometimes. We look around and We think this person has more than we do. They've been gifted in areas in which we would like to be gifted. They've been placed in positions in which we would like to be. That you've placed us where we are. And you've given us what we have in order that we might serve you. So Lord, help us as we fight those temptations in life to recognize that truth. Use us, Lord, for your honor and your glory. And if there's one here today that has not placed their faith in you, recognize that they're sinners and accepted the provision that Jesus made on the cross of Calvary, then, Lord, I pray they might do that today. They might do that even at this time as they turn and admit that they're sinners and ask to be forgiven, accepting what Jesus did on the cross for them. Lord, whatever you want to do in our hearts and lives, we turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.